This season of Desert Island Dishes is brought to you in partnership with Cook's Matches. Cook's Matches have been the mainstay of British kitchens for over 40 years, and they remain the match for both cooks and chefs to use in the kitchen. With summer just around the corner, it really does feel that way, we aren't far away from barbecue season and all those gorgeous summer parties, which means you should have your cook's matches to hand to take you from lighting the barbecue at lunchtime right through to the evening when you can get some candles lit in the garden. No kitchen should be complete without a trusty box of these matches. They are just the easiest and most eco-friendly way to light everything from stoves to barbecues to candles. If you're stuck for what to cook this summer, then Cook's Matches loves compiling recipes to show easy, delicious and family-friendly dishes. Head over to their Instagram page at Cook's Matches and join the Cook's community. Find out more online by visiting cooksmatches.co.uk. Thank you very much to Cooks Matches. Hi, I'm Margie Namora and welcome to the Desert Island Dishes podcast. This is the podcast where every week I ask my guests to choose their seven Desert Island Dishes. These range from finding out about the dish that most reminds them of their childhood, the best dish they've ever eaten, and of course, the last dish they would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island. Hi, I hope you're all well and that you've had a lovely week. If you're listening to this the day it comes out, we are on a brand new bank holiday here in the UK, celebrating the Queen's Jubilee. There's bunting and Union Jacks galore and a three-day week, which is pretty exciting. This is a lovely episode with Rav, who has achieved so much in a really short space of time, but also one of those stories where a lot of hard work and graft went in behind the scenes before her meteoric rise happened, which is so often the way we just don't see that part of the story. But I think it's really important to remember that it exists. Her new book is out now. It came out at the end of last year and it's a beauty. So if you're interested in baking, then I definitely recommend getting your hands on a copy. That's enough from me. Here is today's episode. Enjoy. My guest today is Ravneet Gill. Ravneet is fast becoming one of the best known pastry chefs of her generation. After completing a psychology degree, she studied at Le Cordon Bleu before working her way up the ranks in different pastry sections at some of the best restaurants in London, most notably St. John, Llewellyn's and Wild by Tart. Rav published her first cookbook in April 2020 entitled The Pastry Chef's Guide, The Secret to Successful Baking Every Time, as a handbook to dispel the fear around baking. And since then, it looks as though her feet have barely touched the ground. She joined both the Telegraph and Guardian Feast as their new baking columnist and starred as a judge on Channel 4's Junior Bake Off alongside Liam Charles and host Harry Hill. A winner at the 2021 GQ Food and Drink Awards, this year she also launched the Dams and Jelly Academy Online Cookery School. In 2018, she set up an organization called Counter Talk, a platform designed to help connect chefs, provide education and promote healthy work environments in the hospitality industry. The Counter Talk platform has gone from strength to strength over the last few years through Rav's hard work. In addition to all of this, she has just brought out her second cookbook, Sugar, I Love You. Rav has said, 
Pastry is an art, but it's also food. So remember to stay in touch with your ingredients, reflect the seasons in your food, and for the love of God, don't use strawberries in December. Welcome, Rav. Hi, thank you. So that was such a nice introduction. <laughs> and it made me think, oh my goodness, I have done a lot in two years. You've done so much. I mean, I can't believe it was only 2020 that you brought out your first cookbook. So much has happened since then. In the introduction, I said that, you know, it seems like your feet have barely touched the ground. Is that how it feels to you? Completely. And today I've been having a bit of a stressful day. And you saying that has made me calm down a bit and think, okay, I can be easier on myself today. I've I've done a lot. I think so, Rav. I think it's time for a holiday. (laughs) Are you someone that is always looking forwards or are you able to sort of reflect on how far you've come? I have to force myself to constantly be present. Otherwise, my head will be like speeding around in the future. So I actually do a lot to stay present in the moment. Can you congratulate yourself on things that you've achieved? Are you not that kind of person? I tend to just brush it off and move on. (laughs) It's because my parents are like that. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) And how does the thought of going to a desert island make you feel? Uh, Terrified. (laughs) Terrified and also excited if it happens do you know what I mean terrified because I have so much work to do okay <laughs> oh I love that as well I thought maybe you meant because you're going to be alone <laughs> and you've missed friends or okay you're thinking deadlines they're not going to happen yeah but we could explain to them that you're on a desert island sure but then also I'd, I'd be excited at the prospect of having alone time relaxing <laughs> I think we should dive straight into the first desert island dish and that's the dish that most reminds you of your childhood I think childhood is a multitude of different things. I was a really fussy eater as a kid. Until like the age of 12, 13, even 14, my main food comprised of chips, chicken nuggets, chocolate bars, and plain roti because I'm Indian. And I'd eat some dal on the side, but it would be very plain foods and chips was my number one. So I would say that one of my childhood dishes would be chips and also a plate of pudding. Steam treacle sponges, that sort of thing. (laughs) I think your mum has also said you were quite interested in jam sandwiches. (laughs) And I used to get teased at school. I used to get called Banana Lady because she used to force me every day to take a banana and a jam sandwich and a packet of crisps in my lunch. (laughs) Banana Lady? (laughs) Maybe we should bring that back. (laughs) It taunts me to this day and I actually really don't like eating bananas anymore. No, because of that. It was like a forced thing. Yeah. Okay. And not because of the nickname. No, to give me like fruit because I would just loving things like chips. Yeah. She didn't want you to get scurvy. No. <laughs> of all your relatives, you say that your mom is definitely the best cook because she's from Kenya. So she, you say, has got more of an edge when it comes to the spicing. And I think your mom herself has said that whilst Indians will often only cook the food of the region that they're from, because she grew up in Nairobi, it exposed her to lots of different ingredients and cuisines, which led her to be the most incredible sounding cook. But she's not a baker, is she? She's an amazing cook. Yeah, my mom doesn't bake at all. It terrifies her because my mom doesn't like recipes. Okay. (laughs) But often at big family gatherings... It's known that my mum is one of the the good chefs, probably the best, I'd like to say. I hope it doesn't produce arguments, but she's the best one because she's from Kenya and all the other aunties are from India. They also love her food because it's quite different. It just brings something different. But don't get me wrong, I love Indian food too. And are you, obviously, you're an amazing baker. Are you a good cook? Yes, I would say, I would say people think that I'm pigeonholed into pastry and I don't mind it because I think it's good to specialise in things. Secretly, I love cooking and I love eating, but my mum would disagree with the way that I cook Indian food, for example. 
So I cook Indian food from a restaurant point of view because I learned it more in a restaurant I worked in in London. It was a Mission Star Indian restaurant. And I learned so many different techniques there than my mom would use. So if I cook Indian food side by side next to her, she's intrigued. She loves it, but she will criticize me the entire time, you know? <laughs> it's just a, a different way of doing it. Yes. And is it possible to be a really amazing pastry chef and not be a good cook? Is that possible? Do you know people like that? Well, I think the two come hand in hand. And it's really important as a pastry chef to understand cooking as well. I always think that the pastry chefs who don't like cooking savoury food don't balance their desserts properly. Oh, that's interesting. I think that's the magic of getting good desserts out. And I think in the first couple of years when I was a pastry chef, I had lost sight of that. It was only when I started to put myself in the savoury parts of the kitchen in restaurants that my pastry got better, if that makes sense. I, I started to understand seasoning a bit more and also understanding that there was balance in ingredients and flavours and textures and bringing those two things together, I think, make you a better all-rounded chef and pastry chef. And probably vice versa as well. I feel like a lot of really great chefs maybe slightly ignore pastry if that's not their speciality and probably to their detriment. It does get ignored a lot. I, I love going to really good restaurants to eat dinner and I always get upset when the food is really good and the dessert is neglected. However, I do think you can be an incredible chef and not be that great at pastry because it's a completely different skill set. Pastry is very disciplined and it's very um, measured. Everything kind of works towards a science, whereas with cooking, there's a freedom. But the other way around, they really work together. Also, do you think it's sometimes that the pastry people are the last to be able to leave at night? And that's why people just don't go into that section as much as they should. <laughs> Often that you're the first one in and the last one out and your, your working day is very strict and it involves things that aren't as immediate. Whereas with cooking, it's almost instant gratification in a lot of things you can taste as you go. Whereas with baking, you can put a set of ingredients together. It will look crazy. You put it in the oven, something magical comes out. So it's a waiting game. And your grandmother, who you call BG, has become internet famous in her own right. And something that I read, um, she came over to the UK in 1974 and she said that all the ingredients in Kenya were fresh and organic and that she never cooked anything from the freezer before she came to the UK and that even now she's never used an oven. Is that still true? BG is a great cook. And she would never cook anything in the oven. It's only now that she's been modernized that if she has a pizza or something, we'll heat it up in the oven for her. Okay. But she has no idea how to use it. <laughs> but because I think she said that in Kenya, they were cooking on coals and then obviously came over here and it was gas or whatever. But it wasn't, there weren't any dishes that needed an oven. Exactly. She's all about the stovetop and, and a gas stove. It can't be induction. No, I hate induction. Me too. It's awful. Who invented and I have them? one and I oh, you can't do? stand it. I feel like they got invented and then everyone got really excited and now people are not excited and we're all retreating. Gas is much better. It's just easier to control. Let's talk about the second desert island dish and that's the first dish that you learned to cook. The first dish that I learned to cook, well, I, I wouldn't say well, but the first dish I learned how to cook was pancakes, crepes from Adelia Smith cookbook. And it was with my dad. And we used to make them sort of as a ritual together because I really love crepes and pancakes, but my mum couldn't cook them for some reason. <laughs> I remember when I was at a primary school called Dawlish and Leighton, all the kids were having pancake day. And I said, mum, please make me these pancakes. 
because before we used to buy them in the packets in the supermarket, you know, used to get them individually packaged. (laughs) I said, please make them their pancake day. And then, well, please make them it's pancake day. And she made them and I came home and spat them out and said they were so disgusting. I felt, I feel awful saying it now. (laughs) Wait, what did she do wrong? I just remember not liking them. They probably just tasted quite different to the supermarket ones. And then me and my dad decided that we would start cooking them together on a Saturday morning. That's such a nice tradition. Talking about your dad, you went to university to study psychology, something that I think your parents were really excited about, particularly when you decided to go one step further and do a PhD. But that isn't quite what happened. Tell us a little bit about that time. When I was at university, I was quite lost. I wasn't sure what direction I wanted to go in. I was having a lot of people around. I was constantly cooking. I was constantly baking. I was doing the big dinner parties. Not that I was very good at anything, but, you know, at a time... Everyone thought I was great. (laughs) Now I look back, I don't think I was, but I was baking so much. I had these lingering thoughts. I wanted to go and be a chef and I thought I'll never do it really. And then the opportunity came up to do a PhD in my dissertation, which was all about eye movements. So, but from a cognitive point of view and the PhD was in macular degeneration. And it was a way of figuring out technology that could help people with dyslexia read on devices like Kindles. Wow. So very niche. Yeah, very niche, very specific. <laughs> and I feel like it makes me sound very clever. It does. I feel intimidated. <laughs> no, don't, because I've forgotten a lot of the knowledge I learned anyway. <laughs> and, you know, I got very excited about it because this was an opportunity after university. I didn't have anything else in place. And I told my dad, who we went to visit Royal Holloway, where it was going to happen. And I remember looking at these people sat in these offices, working away, doing their PhD. And I thought, I can't do that. So I pulled out last minute. Okay. And you decided to become a chef, but what did that mean? Because you went to the Cordon Bleu, but was that straight away or did you go and work in a restaurant? What did you, what did you picture being a chef would mean? I just typed it into Google. How do you be a chef? And a few cookery schools came up and I thought, right, what I'll do is I'll go to a cookery school and then I'll go straight into restaurants. I had no idea what it really entailed. And looking back, I probably wouldn't have gone to cookery school, but I did because that's what I thought you had to do doing hosting jobs and things like that to earn good money. I worked in a chocolate shop. I worked in a private members club as a chef or learning. And at the same time, I went to cookery school. So it was sort of funding me to be there. And then I left cookery school and then went straight into paid working kitchens. And how long were you at cookery school? Six months. And that's interesting that you say if you could go back now, you wouldn't bother. Is that because you feel like you actually learned so much more on the job or why would you not do it again? I just say that from a financial point of view, because I'm always a big advocate of if you don't have the money, you don't need to do it to feel validated. A lot of people think they have to do it for the validation and almost like that stamp of approval. However, all the stuff I learned, yes, it was good. But as soon as I went into kitchens, a lot of it was scrapped and I'd get teased for, you know, making creme patissiere a certain way or having certain rules in place because it's actually very flexible And sometimes cookery school, yes, it can teach you, but it can also make you more of a rigid cook. Yeah. And now there are so many resources out there. I think if you're dedicated enough, you can learn yourself. Yeah. I think it's maybe because we're so programmed to have qualifications and you're coming from a degree background. So your mind immediately goes to the place of thinking, well, what qualification do I need to do? I can't, surely I can't just start, (laughs) but sometimes you can. Yeah. And when I would employ people in kitchens into a team, I wouldn't really look at the qualifications that they had. It would be very much based on the 
skill of the individual when they came in for a trial and it wouldn't make me not want to interview them just because they didn't have a qualification I think a lot of it is about grit and determination and if you're a good worker and with chefing and cooking it's a really about physical ability and also are you someone that they want to have on the team like are you a nice person to be around no but it's true not you know it is such a team sport being in the kitchen, isn't yeah, it? Exactly. And so, yeah, you've got to spend a lot of time with those people and that often trumps qualifications. Yes, it's very important. <laughs> no, <laughs> but I also thought you were asking me, like, are you a good person in the kitchen? And I was thinking, well, of course I'm going to say. Your eyes went so wide, but Rav, I'm sure you're a really great person in the kitchen. It must have felt so scary doing something so different to what you'd first intended and doing something that I think lots of people around you thought was quite risky. I know that you've said there were times in the early days where you felt like possibly you'd made a huge mistake. How long did that feeling last for? That was years of self-doubt and thinking this career is going to get me nowhere. And I just used to think I'd be in a kitchen doing a monotonous task, like making hundreds and hundreds of chocolate fondants, thinking... This is just me until I'm retired. I didn't see any avenues of change or where it was going. Which is scary. Really scary. And especially when you looked at your paycheck at the end of the month and all my friends were in these grad jobs. Some of them were, um, you know, buying their first place in my mid-twenties or had cars of their own and things like that would baffle me. And I used to think, how on earth? I didn't even have a pension I still don't actually have a pension, but I'll sort that out. But I used to think, gosh, how am I going to get out of this? And my mum used to say, well, you need to marry a rich man. And I used to think, well, where are they? Can't see any. <laughs> yeah. And now I am the rich husband. <laughs> Fair. Mum, I am the rich man. Um, how would you sum up those early days of working in a restaurant? Because I think you've likened it to being in a playground. Yeah, I always say it's like being in a playground, Any no rules apply and I think it's a beautiful thing and a terrifying thing at the same time. The beautiful thing is that you, you're accepted. I really feel like when you go into a kitchen, you're accepted, especially in London from my experience. We had, for example, when I worked at Llewellyn's, a really incredible chef who literally walked in from the street and said, can you give me a job? We gave him a job as a pot wash and he had come over to England from Calais and he was basically had had sought refugee status and had been in prison and had a really tough time and he worked his way up to a cdp position wow and all of that just because he was such a good genuine guy and he worked really hard and i think if you have that willing open attitude you'll be accepted taken on and people really want to pass on their skills so on the one hand it's an incredible environment because you can be nurtured and taught a lot but then on the other hand it can be terrifying if you have low confidence or if you feel shy, I remember that was me at the very beginning, any form of confrontation or sort of criticism, it would just make me crumble. And I remember crying a lot in the fridge. <laughs> I know. Despite your parents not being overly happy, I did read that when you were about 14, an astrologer told your mum that you would work in the food industry. And that wasn't something that she remembered until quite recently. But that's amazing, isn't it? I remember going to India with her and getting this astrology reading done. I had my palms read and we used to love this astrologer. He's passed away, actually. We're gutted. But he said to my mum, your daughter... He actually had, he had a missing leg, but that's another story. Okay. Anyway, and 
he had said to her, your daughter's going to work in food, but be careful because she'll get really fat. And she never told me any of this because she really dismissed it and thought it was never going to happen. Because at that point you were just eating jam sandwiches and refusing your bananas. And making cupcakes and like being pretty rubbish at it. So I think she didn't really acknowledge that that was going to happen. Yeah, but isn't that cool? I love things like that. And also cool that you didn't sort of remember and it, it didn't sway your direction in any way. I think that's what's cool about yeah. it. Yeah. It's sort of in hindsight, oh, he, he said that and it turned out right. Yeah. Let's talk about the third desert island dish, and that's the best dish you've ever eaten. This is honestly one of the hardest questions, and I've had to think about this a lot. There are so many incredible dishes and lots of amazing things that I've eaten, but something that does stand out is an apple souffle that I had at the Sportsman. Ooh. I'll never forget it. I had the tasting menu, and it was so much food. I was stuffed by the end of it. And I thought there's no way I can eat dessert. I was so full. And they brought over this stunning bright green apple souffle. It looked like magic and it was so light and so fluffy. And I distinctly remember how good that was. Sounds really, I don't think I've ever had an apple souffle. And the whole meal was actually fantastic. That's a good sign that even when you're so full, the pudding is the thing that really stands out. Goes in a different stomach. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, please can you tell us about your first book deal? Because the story of how that came about is so serendipitous, I think, almost like it was meant to be. Yeah, I mean, and I tell it because I always want to encourage people that you never know what's going to happen and you never know who you're cooking for, right? So I got the deal because I'd written a cookbook proposal because someone I know had asked me to write one and had I ever considered it, I wrote the proposal, just Googled how do you write a cookbook proposal ended up writing, you know, a really, now I look back at it, I cringe, but it was basically an intro sample, a few recipes, some chapters, and then sent it off to this guy called Ben. And then he got back to me and said that his agent who was looking at it wasn't interested. And then I just thought, fine, no problem. I thought that's probably not for me anyway. And then I was working at Llewellyn's at the time. I left, even though I loved it so much, I left to do other things. And then one of the regular customers sent me an email or a message saying, we miss your dessert so much. You don't by any chance have a cookbook proposal because I have a friend in publishing who I'd love to send it to. And I just thought it was Joy and Helen. And I remember thinking, these two are out of their mind. It's just something they're saying to me to be nice. And I bet you nothing's going to come from it. You know, you just think that. And there were regular customers that would always come in and sit on a table, I remember which table, and have all of the desserts. And then... I did my first counter talk event and it was all about bread in a basement. And the next day I had the, one of the editors at Pavilion send me an email saying, Hey Rav, I have your proposal in my inbox. I came to your event last night. Do you want to talk about taking this further? Oh my goodness. So she had the proposal from the two women. From Joy and Helen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so that says to me that so whilst so you were head were you head chef at Llewellyn's I was head pastry, pastry chef, chef but I was basically the only pastry chef okay <laughs> and so you have when you're working in a place like that you have free reign you're using your yes. own recipes and you're that's so exciting I love Llewellyn's because I really did have creative reign and I can I would walk to work I moved down the road and I would walk to work thinking about things that were in season, what I had ordered, what was coming in and what I could make from it. Then I'd get into the kitchen, have these wonderful ingredients in front of me and then just make dishes. And I loved working like that. It was like a dream. And the menu would change daily. 
and you didn't feel pressure to have to make, you know, the same menu for months on end. And that was an incredible thing about Llewellyn's. Yeah, that's so exciting. It's sort of a bit stifling if you're just cooking what someone else is telling you to make, but actually like, because cooking is so creative, if you don't, if you're not allowed to have that aspect, it's not quite as fun as it. And it was definitely at Llewellyn's where I sort of honed in a lot of my recipes and got to try a lot of things and make things for the counter and also things that would tie in well with the menu. And if I ever were to open a restaurant, it would be very similar in that way of thinking. Does that mean that's something that you're thinking about? I think that's the last thing I could do right now. (laughs) Right now, I'm not sure you have time, but that's exciting to think that might be on the cards for the future. So when the book came out, you were obviously having huge success as a pastry chef and working in restaurants, but you didn't have the platform that you have now. But everything just seemed to explode. It was a month into the first lockdown in 2020. Was it the cookies that did it? (laughs) I don't know. It's really, it's really weird because so many people now say to me, oh my goodness, your career exploded in lockdown. How did you do it? And actually, I have no idea. <laughs> the book came out and when it actually, I remember being really upset about it because I thought the book's coming out. We're in a national lockdown. I had to cancel my launch party. I thought no one's going to care about this book. But incredibly, everyone started to bake and it couldn't be a more fortunate time for it to happen. Isn't that nice when things like that happen? Something that you're really upset and stressed about and actually that turns out to be the making of it. The book coming out really did seem to change a lot of things in your life, in your career. Did you have any sense of that before it came out? Were were your publishers saying to you, this book's going to be really big? Not at all. (laughs) And I really didn't think anyone would buy it. And when people even now send me questions about it, Like, oh, I've tried this recipe. Have you thought about doing this? Or can I please do this with it? Even now think, I can't believe someone's reading that. (laughs) It just feels crazy to me. And my publishers hadn't said anything. It just, I think it was the grit during lockdown of realizing that I had no financial support. I was living with my parents and my grandmother again. And I thought, shit, I need to do something. I mean, I swear. And it was me just getting on with it on social media and having a bit of a laugh, not taking it seriously at all. I started doing Instagram lives, teaching people how to cook for fun. And then it exploded from that spiraling effect. Because I think in lockdown, especially for chefs and people in the food world on socials, you either did something or you didn't. And those that did, it seemed to be a massive springboard for them. And I was definitely one of those people. So I'm very grateful. Oh, so good to hear success stories come out of what was quite a horrendous time. Your second book has just come out, Sugar, I Love You. And I think that's the title that you originally wanted to call your first book, isn't it? Yes. (laughs) I remember sitting with my first agent saying, I want to call it Sugar, I Love You. And he said, it's so fun, but you can't do that. (laughs) Why? From a marketing point of view, it perhaps sounded a bit crazy. For a first-time author, I think there was the risk of it going into that category where people found it, gross instead of charming so yeah it's interesting that you have to approach the first book very differently to the second it's sort of you have to prove yourself with the first book and introduce yourself to the world and then with the second one you can maybe show a bit more personality exactly and also the first one was always meant to be a framework and a way of teaching people how to cook with as a replacement for cookery school that was always the intention 
So actually, The Pastry Chef's Guide is a much more fitting title for that book. And Sugar, I Love You Now is the quirky, silly, you know, full recipe book with bold pictures. And they're, they're very different books. Yeah. So the second one, it's very personal and anecdotal. Was it a very different kind of book to write? Very, very different. And I felt relieved that I had written the first one because if I hadn't, I think Sugar, I Love You would be a lot more clunky because I'm obsessed with trying to help people understand why things work a certain way. And if I hadn't written Pastry Chef's Guide, then this book wouldn't have been as sleek and smooth, if that makes sense. Yeah, because you would have been sort of shoehorning in all the stuff that you put in your first one, which you can't miss out. But now you've done that in that one, you don't have to do it in the second one. Yeah, and sometimes I get so focused on those details of being like, and you can do this with it, and you can do this with it, and make sure that you don't do that, that things can get a bit much. So it needed to be broken down in that way. Do you like the process of writing books or are you one of those people who likes the process once it's finished? Yeah, I do. I really enjoyed writing them, but I think that it's hard if you have other things to do at the same time, (laughs) then it can feel really overwhelming. (laughs) So how long did it, how long did the first one take you? The first one was okay because I had all the recipes already typed up and written and I did that meticulously for years just because that's the way I am. And a lot of that involves scaling them down, retesting them and writing them in a more friendly way, because often a lot of my recipes were typed up without methods. And I remember thinking, do people really need to know how to make a creme patissier again? And my publisher would be like, yes. (laughs) So the first book was a lot easier because I had a lot of the knowledge already. And it was more just streams of knowledge that that I was just typing and getting out because I knew it all already. Whereas the next book, it was more about Um, pushing myself a bit more to test other recipes and I would often start that entire process with blank pages of paper and just writing things I thought would work together it was a real hard book to write and and as you say you had so many other things going on I don't really understand how I feel like maybe you have more hours in the day than other people Rav what's the secret people say to me sometimes how do you balance everything how is everything so well put together for you. And I think, oh my goodness, my life is so not balanced. It's the opposite. And you should not model how to live based on the way I do it. Because often things get neglected or, you know, it means I'll be staying up till silly hour or I'll be eating takeaways for a week. All that sort of stuff happens. It just doesn't get shouted about as much. Yeah, that social media isn't. Let's pause there and talk about the fourth desert island dish. And that is your favorite sandwich. I love sandwiches. Yay. (laughs) And I'm a really big fan of a warm sandwich. And I remember having this incredible pastrami bagel. It was a Reuben bagel by Chef Matty, who I worked with at Llewellyn's. And it was warm. The bagel was incredible. It was, you know, full of this Russian dressing. And I remember eating that and being pretty mind blown because it wouldn't be something I would normally go for. But that was a pretty incredible sandwich. That sounds really good. <laughs> I can understand why that one stayed with you. Let's talk about counter talk because it feels like such an important space that was really needed. Like one of those things you sort of, you almost can't believe it didn't exist before you started it. For anyone who doesn't know, it's a platform designed to help connect chefs, provide education and also promote healthy work environments in the hospitality industry. So the aim is very much to create a more equal and supportive workplace and help foster new talent. Is that how you'd sum it up? 
Yes, and it's really community-based. Counter Talk was started as an idea and it was all about bringing people together, highlighting those who didn't get spoken about enough. And also I spent so much time in awful kitchens or in jobs I didn't like that I thought instead of moaning about that, let's just create a place where we can talk about the good ones so people can bypass those bad experiences and then just enjoy their time in kitchens and in, in food environments because it's such a... It's a career we go into because we're all passionate about food. I don't see the point of going into it just to have that passion being out of you. Yeah, that's such a good point. And when you're starting something like that, that is community based, I guess it can take you in unexpected directions. What are some of those places that it's taken you that you weren't quite expecting? From where it is now compared to where it was of two very different places. Firstly, it was an Instagram page and I would run events about food, pasta, bread, ice cream. It was very fun. And that was very networking based. It was all funded from my chef salary. I would work full time as a chef, get home and then between midnight and two o'clock in the morning, schedule all my emails and just try and look like a, make it look like a functioning business. And then I would also advertise jobs. I had a little platform that I got my friend to help me build. And then we would vet the places. So it was really hard. If you think about the, the amount of you know, hours that had to go into getting even one job ad live compared to what revenue it was taking. It was basically not worth it. And then during lockdown, I had to take it down because of the the cost. Tech is so expensive, can I just say? And keeping that going for that, for however long lockdown was going to be, just didn't seem worth it. So I took it down and then I brought it back at the beginning of the year, rebuilt the site again. And I'm also working on rebuilding it some more at the moment, but that's another story. And I employed two incredible people. I have an incredible uh, friend called Kitty who works at St. John, who I met there, who does all of our social outreach and Instagram, writes our newsletters, and really has her finger on the pulse in terms of what people want to know in the community. And she's responsible for getting a lot of those resources. And then amazing Max, who I've also worked with and known for years, who runs the business development side of the business of Counter Talk. And I to now think that two people work in this company makes me so grateful because I never thought we'd get to that place. And it's almost as if, you know, we've doubled in followers in a year less than a year. And we've also just been able to get so much more reach. And it feels as though when I was doing it before, no one was really listening. <laughs> and now that I have more opportunities, people enjoy counter talk more. And I feel like it's finally getting its shining moment. And our whole thing is a lot of what we do is all driven by the community and what people want to know. So we do things like, if you want to know how to write a cookbook, we'll do a transparent talk on exactly how you can do that. And really amazingly, we've had a few people from the talks actually land deals. And we have run talks on how to open your own small business. And I love the community so much because I walked into a really lovely restaurant the other day and two of the front of house staff came up to me saying, we got this job because of you, because we saw it advertised and we love it. And that sort of stuff is what keeps the whole company going really, because it's really hard to run a company and try and do as much as you can off the back of, you know, tech-based revenue. It's really, really stretching. It's very hard. And those sorts of things keep the company going. That's so exciting. Let's pause there and talk about the fifth Desert Island dish. And that's the dish you eat the most often. I would say it's pasta. And I, I'm sure that a lot of people say this. In restaurants, star food is pretty much always pasta yeah, because it's so the true. quickest thing to put together. <laughs> and I have a love-hate relationship with it. I love it so much. But equally, 
hate how tired it makes me sometimes. <laughs> and also how much of it I can eat in one sitting. But also I'm really good at making it and making it really delicious and really quickly because I know how to batch make it for like 100 people in a go. So what would be your go-to quick pasta dish? I love making puttanesca, one of my favorites, and also a slow-cooked tomato sauce. I'll make the tomato sauce for two or three days and then freshly ha- like boil the pasta. And Matty at Llewellyn's taught me how to make, in my opinion, the best tomato sauce. What goes in it? I, we actually teach it in the next Dams and Jelly course because so many people ask for it. Okay. But it contains... His mum taught it to him, he's Italian, and it contains a good amount of chili, garlic, red wine, really, really good tomatoes, lots of olive oil. It's all in the technique, though. It's amazing. Sounds really good. Whilst we love to celebrate success on this podcast, we also like to talk about the twists and turns and things that don't necessarily go to plan, as it's easy to look at the success and not appreciate all the hard work that it took to get there. I think I read that you got fired from one of your restaurant jobs. And I wondered if you could tell us a little bit about that to make us all feel better. (laughs) Yes. And actually, there are so many constant mistakes and things that go wrong all the time. And I wish that it was more commonplace to talk about them. Often what you see on social media is a really small snippet of someone's life. And when I worked, I got this dream job that was opening in my opinion, one of the best pastry places in London. It has since closed down, by the way. And I believe it's because they couldn't keep the staff. The environment was so awful and it wasn't what it was meant to be. And I remember getting the job, being so excited. I thought I had made it in life. And as soon as I stepped into that environment, it was a complete show, basically. I'd come from St. John and I'd gone into this place. And St. John was a magical environment, went into this new place and it was all not what it was meant to be. Staff were not getting treated properly. We were working 60 to 80 hour weeks. The commies were on £3.30 an hour and everything was frozen. The ingredients were advertised one way, but actually not, you know, actually used in another way. And being disingenuous is not something that sits very well with me. And I'm always categorically in my life. It's a pattern. If something bad is happening or people are getting mistreated, I am that bitch that stands up for them. (laughs) It happens on the tube. It happens when you're walking down the street and it will happen in the workplace too. Because I just can't, I can't stand it when people don't feel like they have a voice to speak. I will speak for them. And in this occasion, I got fired for it. So you went in as head pastry chef? No, No, I was employed as a, chef de party. I was asked to be a sous chef, but I said I wanted to be chef de party because I thought, wow, I'm going to learn so much in this place. Let me just go in at this level and learn. I got employed as a CDP. I was doing the role of a sous chef. And then it all sort of spiraled because in my opinion, the head chef did not know how to manage a team. I don't really know what to say. (laughs) So it's awful that that kind of thing's happening, isn't it? And it happens on a daily basis in kitchens and it can be so off-putting if that happens to you and imagine if you're the powerless one that doesn't have a voice or imagine if that's your first experience of working in a restaurant you're just going to turn around and go and work like in law or something aren't you and it happens all the time we get emails about it accounts talk one one bad experience can deter someone for good and we as an industry are not at a point where we can afford for that to happen because we're so short-staffed why not just work on improving your environment, treating people nicely so that when they move on, 
they take that culture with them. It's not all about instant gratification and instantly trying to squeeze everything you can out of people. You've got to think about the long game and how to generate the industry if you really care about it. Yeah. You've recently been a judge on Junior Bake Off, which is incredible. Tell us how that came about. Was it something that you put yourself forwards for or how did it come to you? I will say it again, as I constantly say it. I never went for the job. I got a message on Instagram. I got um, like a Facebook message, a LinkedIn message, emails, and I ignored them. Why? Because, you know, you get spam messages and you think, oh, what is this? Was it the same person? Yes, but I hadn't put two and two together. And also, I didn't think it was uh, true. And then I ended up giving this person a call thinking, I'll just call them. They're very persistent. And it ended up being a call to audition for Junior Bake Off. And I remember exactly where I was sitting. I was sitting by my fireplace in my mum's house. And I turned around to her and I said, oh, that was for Junior Bake Off. I said, I'm not going to go because I really thought I'd be up against hundreds of people in a silly audition room. And I've been, I've been to auditions before back when I used to do hosting and, you know, little jobs to make good money. And I thought I'm not putting myself in that position again. (laughs) And my mum just told me to shut up and go. I went to the audition. What did you have to do? I had to pretend to judge some bakes from these lovely two bakers with Liam and it was me against another person, but I didn't know. I thought I was against a lot more people. And then somehow, I think because I didn't put any pressure on myself because I really thought I wasn't going to get it, I got the job. That's amazing. The person sending you those messages must have thought you were playing so hard to get. (laughs) They must have been like, oh, okay, I guess you've got loads of TV opportunities just coming at you every day. (laughs) I never thought TV was something that would happen for me. I just didn't think that it was a viable career path. And now we're good friends. His name's Johnny and he's brilliant. (laughs) (laughs) I guess, I mean, it is, it's sort of, it's a pipe dream, isn't it? It's something that's sort of, it's so big, you don't really dare to think about it or I don't know. So it's amazing that it happened in the way that it did. And how did you find the actual experience of, of doing the job? It was very nerve wracking because it was a job role that I had never anticipated and being on a TV show is so different from filming Instagram lives on your phone. You suddenly have so many people looking at you. You have someone who does your makeup, someone who literally dresses you, someone who tells you to perhaps say something again, but another way. And all of these different things married together. On top of this, the incredible contestants who are sort of counting on you to be the best person you can be. And it's really, really daunting. Really overwhelming. Yes. So... But first did you day. did you warm up to it? Yeah. yeah. I just remember on the first day I went and sat in my car and I thought, oh my goodness, can't do this. I thought, no way am I doing this. And then it I used so it. scary. And also the kids in the first one didn't know who I was. They were kind of like, who's she? <laughs> That's me... a real ego boost. <laughs> it made me even here more to judge you. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, kids just say yes. anything. They don't care. A lot of them wouldn't look at me on the first show and I remember like the first couple of episodes and I guess they must also just be sussing me out did you have to go full Paul Hollywood on them I was really gentle very nice I ended up warming up to lots of the kids and then giving them pep talks behind the scenes and by the end of it I didn't want it to end I loved it let's pause there and talk about the sixth desert island dish and that's your go-to dinner party dish dinner parties in my house are rare occasions I would like them to be more regular occasions. However, timing wise, I just don't get to do them as much as I would like. And I constantly in my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to invite so-and-so around for dinner on Friday. 
and I think about all the things I'm going to make and then it never actually happens and it drives thought, me crazy. It's a thought that counts. Yeah. <laughs> but when I do have dinner parties, it's always based around either a cookbook that I've been really inspired by and I'll cook quite a few dishes from that book or my go-to is usually really wonderfully cooked spatchcock chicken and loads of different sides and the sides always vary sometimes it will be if broccoli purple spot and broccoli is in season lots of chili lots of garlic lots of um smoked almonds on top and then i'll do lots of different dips and breads and potatoes and it really depends on the season we're in the ingredients i can get and then also usually based around spatchcocking some chickens because my kitchen is quite small. I need to be effective with my space. And I find that being able to prep lots of different side dishes is fun. And I love everyone sharing. And obviously there is always dessert. I was going to say people must come with quite high expectations for pudding. Yes. And when it's my closest friends, I don't make them dessert. I tell them to bring it. (laughs) (laughs) And if you had to make a pudding to really impress people, what's your go-to? It really depends. Again, what time of the year we're in. I like it to reflect. Is there something that you, you, you always make? I mean, everything you make is delicious, but is there anything that people sort of go a bit crazy for? People know me for custard and it could be a creme brulee. It could be a creme, set creme brulee custard, which is a recipe in my new book that people love. Cheesecake I'm very known for, a Japanese cheesecake, a basque cheesecake, a set cheesecake, and also really good chocolate cake. It depends. There's a big repertoire and often if I'm hosting and I'm making dessert, there'll be three desserts, not just one. Maybe sometimes do you ever just leave out the main course and just go straight to pudding? (laughs) Never, because I am the one that needs to eat the savoury food. (laughs) (laughs) On Desert Island Dishes, we've got a cookbook corner. So I'd love to know what is your most treasured cookbook? I have so many treasured cookbooks. Actually, if you see my shelves, they are full of cookbooks. Sadly, I don't get to get to quite a few of them. My favorite cookbooks are all of the old school Rue Brothers cookbooks and also the ones that don't contain any pictures. Oh, I love them too. Yeah, that are just tiny and A5, which is what the Pastry Chef's Guide was based on. Those old English um, pudding books that had gems of wisdom in there. Do you think we've just moved on and people... Mark, like people get so angry if there isn't a photo yeah. for every recipe. <laughs> that <laughs> happened you, to me. <laughs> do, you think, do you think we'll go back to a time of recipe books with no photos or are we beyond that? I worry about society sometimes because I just think we're a society that wants constant gratification and it's getting worse and worse. If you look at Instagram and social media, it's all about videos now. Everyone suddenly has to be a video maker because all we want to do is just sit there and consume and consume and consume and i worry that it's gonna just make us worse and we're not going to go back the other way unless somehow something the internet explodes yes and don't get me wrong i'm so grateful for the internet but equally i think especially things like recipes and food i don't like the way that it's consumed at the moment concerns me I I like the way that it opens it up for people who don't know how to cook and it gives them really quick ways of knowing how to cook certain things but it's the constant way that people churn stuff out and that comes from inauthenticity in my opinion and there's no not as much value to it and I'm really big on the value of what you're doing we are on to the final seventh desert island dish and that's the last dish you would choose to eat before being cast off to the desert island I think about this a lot So if I'm being carted off, 
I'm going to want to eat a lot of food. Okay. <laughs> and I'm not going to worry about feeling full. No. One of those things is 100% going to be one of my mum's fenugreek flatbreads. They're called meti parantas. And it's because they are so tasty, addictive, incredible, amazing, fragrant, beautiful, crunchy, crispy, buttery, amazing. <laughs> if I haven't described it enough. The thing I love about them, though, is when you eat them, you smell the next day because the fenugreek really comes out in your pores. Oh, okay. You have to be careful. I remember at school, I'd be like, I can't have these today because I've got PE tomorrow, mum. <laughs> but anyway, I would eat a stack full of those because I'm not going to be with anyone the next day. That's very true. With a bowl of yogurt and a really lovely glass of squash on the side. And quite simple like that. Yum. Yeah. Is that a starter or is that that's, that's the whole feast? I think that would be the whole feast because I have eaten a lot of pudding in my life. I'm okay if I, you know. I feel like your mum would be so happy to know that would be your final dish. Yeah, they are are that incredible. Yeah, so (laughs) nice. I'll definitely be joining you for that one. Rav, thank you so much. Those are your Desert Island dishes. Thank you. So there we have it. Another delicious day of Desert Island dishes. Don't forget that you can rate, review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes no but seriously have you left a review because i know how many of you are listening (laughs) i can see the number of reviews and it doesn't quite stack up and i know it's so annoying and i know you're all really busy but if you did have a spare 30 seconds and that really is all it takes um if you've ever enjoyed an episode of course um do think about leaving a review as i would really be very grateful but if not don't worry (laughs) if you don't already come and find me on instagram at desert island dishes sign up for the newsletter and find a whole host of recipes at desertislanddishes.co thank you so much for listening see you next week bye